Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Jill Weinbanks, Kimberly Atkins-Store, and me, Barb McQuaid. Joyce is away this week and we already miss her. It's the perfect time to get your Hashtag Sisters-in-Law merch. We have hoodies, t-shirts, and our new mug. Head to politicon.com slash merch or just click the link in the show notes today. And now on to the show where we'll be discussing the Fonnie Willis hearings, the judge's decision in the New York fraud case against Donald Trump, and the indictment of an FBI informant. But first, I wanted to ask you guys a question. You know, I've been watching these um, hearings in Georgia uh, involving Fonnie Willis and her payment of cash to uh, Nathan Wade. And I was just wondering, to what extent you guys use cash these days? I mean, I am mostly cashless. And the idea that I'd have a big stash of cash to, uh, you know, pay for a part of a trip or something like that is just not part of my world. How about you guys? So I very seldom these days use cash. I did when the world seemed to be falling apart in, I guess it was 2000 and something. I did go to the bank and take out a significant amount of money and hid it in my house. I no longer have it because I feel the world is a lot safer now than it was then. Um, when what when was that, Jill? I, it was like the financial the financial crisis, 2008. Crisis, 2008. 2008. Oh. Yeah, okay. and my husband did the same thing. And what's important is that we both have separate accounts because I have been raised I, in a family where my mother had no checking account. She was given cash by my father or a check that she would cash to pay for groceries, and. I decided that I would never be in that circumstance. But when I got married to my first husband, I did have only one joint account. And honestly, I'm a better manager of money than he was. And when I left him and set up my own accounts, I decided I would never again have to tell anybody what I was spending. It would be my own money. And Michael, my husband, ex- new husband, accepted that. Not new. We're married 44 years, but my <laughs> second husband. New kids. <laughs> he, he, he accepted this. Um, and we would write two separate checks for our mortgage, one from him, one from me, and for any other bills. And it is only very recently that we actually did create a joint account. Um, and that was because we were buying a, a condominium in the city. And so we wanted to have it in one account. But it was very important to me to be independent and to make my own decisions about money and to know how much I could spend. And I totally understood what Fannie Willis was saying about a man is not a plan Ooh. and to feel that I had. And also, by the way, I have to note in that case that Nathan Wade was called multiple times Mr. Willis, which sort of offended me a lot. I, he's not Mr. Willis, he's Mr. Wade. But um, anyway, so it really raised a lot of emotional issues for me about having your own money, your own account, and holding yourself accountable for it and not relying on a man. I can't help but notice that, Kim, you seem to agree. You've identified yourself today in our Zoom call as Kim's man is not a plan. What's your practice <laughs> with regard to uh, your money management? Uh, yes, I subscribe to the words of uh, uh, the the gentlewoman from Illinois <laughs> as well as the gentlewoman from Georgia. Uh, I love my husband. He's fantastic. He's a wonderful companion, but he is 
not a plan to paraphrase, uh, not even a paraphrase, to directly quote Destiny's Child. The shoes on my feet, I bought it. The clothes I'm wearing, I bought it. Like, I'm an independent woman. I don't have a joint account of any sort with my husband because I, you know, we got married a little later in life. I was in my 40s. He was in his 50s. And there was just no reason. My parents always taught me, always have your own always have your own. So when I was hearing uh, Fannie Willis's father, Mr. Floyd, testify that he taught that to his kids, that felt very familiar to me. So yeah, I may not carry cash unless I'm traveling. So one point that she made, particularly in the Caribbean, Mm -hmm. um, I always have some cash on me when you're traveling, Mm -hmm. whether it's Mm -hmm. To have some small bills, so when you know someone carries your 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 bags to your to your room or to the taxi, you can give it to them. But also in Carib- Caribbean nations, you do you can either have really high um, currency uh, conversion fees, or in places like when I went to Cuba, you can't even use an American credit card in Cuba, so you need to take cash there with you. So I took euros um, because you also get penalized for having American money, but. Um, you, you have to think about these things, especially when you travel. So it was completely, well, we'll get to the credibility of it. But I was just saying, I, I was I was nodding my head uh, when the district attorney was uh, testifying about all that. How about keeping a stash of like six months expenses so, under your the, mattress or whatever that part was? That, that <laughs> happened. So I did that. I think I probably did do that in 2008 too, Jill. And I also did it during the pandemic. Yeah. But because I'm so out of the habit of using cash on a regular basis, I will forget. So when I was moving after, when I was about to get married, I was like, go, you know, packing up my handbags and I opened up this bag and it's like all this, I'm like, what? Oh, that's the money that I took out <laughs> when the pandemic rich. hit. <laughs> I, I will, I run the risk of forgetting that I did it, let alone where it is. So I, I I'm not telling where I hid mine. <laughs> Yeah, probably good good strategy. Well, I need to learn from you guys because, uh, you know, I might have a, a dusty old $20 bill in my wallet and that's about it. I otherwise use credit card or Venmo. You know, Venmo is like the greatest invention ever, right? You can transfer money to people without being present. So that's a good, but we'll have to uh, uh, leave it there to get on with the show because we have a lot to talk about. But uh, future episode, putting a marker down right now, Caribbean or Caribbean? I'm just saying, next time we'll we'll talk about that. So let's get on with our conversation. Jill, I'm reading ever more about the dangers of plastic, plastic containers, plastic packaging. The plastic is coming for us. What are you doing about plastic? Boy, you are so right and it is so frightening in every way, shape, and form, we are polluting the world. And I'm very concerned about that. Did you know that your detergent pods are wrapped in plastic? It's true. The film around your pods is plastic, and it is ending up in our oceans, rivers, and soil. It gets all over the dishes you eat, too. So make a change for the better and do something about it by using Blue Land. Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and the planet. There's no single-use plastic in any component. That includes the bottles, tablets, wrappers, and even shipping. Their tablet packaging is fully compostable, and all of their products are effective and affordable. 
You'll still get the powerful clean you're used to. Their laundry tablets are proven to lift the toughest stains. They'll handle anything from grass to food. We love how you can get even more savings by buying refills in bulk or setting up a subscription. It's customizable and convenient, so you never run out of your most used products. And the scents are delicious too. Blue Lamb is trusted in over 1 million homes, including ours. And now Blue Lamb has a special offer for listeners of this podcast. Right now, you can get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash sisters. You won't want to miss this. Again, that's blueland.com slash sisters for 15% off. blueland.com slash sisters to get 15% off. And you know where you can find the link in our show notes. Today was a second day of hearings in Fulton County, and they started out to be hearings about whether or not the date of the relationship between the district attorney and the chief prosecutor, the manager of the January 6th trial, uh, when it started, it morphed into a hearing about whether they had lied about the date that it started. And it was a pretty dramatic hearing for two days. And I'm just wondering about a lot of things that happened and whether there were any grounds at all mentioned in what we've heard so far to impact the charges against the remaining defendants. So first of all, let's look at Barb, what's the standard for disqualification? Yeah, so important, right? I feel like yeah. in these hearings, we've run so far afield of what we're really doing here. So under Georgia law, there are two bases to disqualify a prosecutor. One is something called forensic misconduct. And I think that typically relates things like, you know, falsifying evidence, destroying evidence, doctoring evidence. That would be forensic uh, misconduct. And then the other is a conflict of interest, but it's not any conflict of interest. It is a conflict of interest against the defendant. And so, you know, for example, Fannie Willis was uh, disqualified from prosecuting Burt Jones, a candidate for lieutenant governor, because she hosted a fundraiser for his opponent. And that gave people the impression that she was kind of out to get him, right? She was trying to uh, harm his political fortunes. And so whether it was or wasn't, it would create that perception that she had a conflict of interest against him. So she was disqualified. But here, even if she's involved in some sort of relationship with Nathan Wade and she is hiring somebody to, uh, um, you know, curry favor with somebody who, with whom she's in a romantic relationship, it has nothing to do with the guilt or innocence of the defendants or her impartiality to prosecute them. I think I've said before, I, I once prosecuted a case with my husband. Um, because we were on the same side of the V, we had an alliance of interest, not a conflict of interest. And so the standard here is whether there is evidence that she either engaged in forensic misconduct or a conflict of interest that would affect the fair trial rights of the defendants. And I think, as I understand the theory, it is this, that in having this relationship with Nathan Wade and paying him um, money generated through his billable hours on working on this case, she was... Um, uh, enjoying the fruits of this decision because she was getting kickbacks uh, in the form of these free trips and free dinners and other kinds of things. And it's money that she authorized in the expenditure of funds from her office. But 
it, it has to go one step further, which is they are making unjustified decisions about charging the case or refusing to cut it short with guilty pleas because they want to keep that spigot rolling. And so that's that's what they would have to show is that there is some incentive here to generate um, attorney time by um, piling on in this case in some way. Okay, so we'll, we're going to probe this a lot. Um, but before we get to some of the actual evidence and whether they met that standard, um, there's one other fundamental question, which is if there should be a decision to disqualify uh, the DA, would her whole office be disqualified? And if that's true, would that be the end of the case? And I point out that the um, defendant who she could not try, so uh, his case was dismissed and transferred somewhere else, nothing's happened with it. So what would happen if she and the whole office are disqualified? Yeah, so I, listen, people who I uh, know and respect have come to different conclusions on this. But as far as I could see, one thing we know is that the replacing the replacement of the prosecutor in this case will be done by the uh, executive director, by the Prosecuting Attorney's Council of Georgia. And the executive director has some pretty broad discretion as to who is chosen. His name is um, Pete Skandalakis. I hope I'm not Scandalakis, I don't know how to pronounce it. My apologies to Pete. But he said in a CNN interview that he would give it to somebody who really wanted this case. He wouldn't force it upon someone. Um, and that he could also have the option of prosecuting it himself. But what the council, who the council usually chooses from is either another DA's office, which means that it would be transferred to someone else outside of Fulton County. He could, he could give it to a private attorney to prosecute. He could also give it to a member of the council itself, which it has at least one member that is from Fulton County. So to me, that says the, the part about take somebody who is ready to go in one, one to do it and giving it to a council member, I don't see any rule precluding someone in Fulton County from taking over this case. So I don't, there's been a lot of, oh, the whole office would be disqualified. That's factually incorrect. There's nothing in the rule that disqualifies the whole office. Whether he would choose somebody in that office, I think it's up to his discretion. So we don't know. And I would think that if he's looking for somebody who would be willing and ready to go on the case, it would probably, that would be the first place that I would look if I were him. But I think it's unclear. So one further question that people have asked me is, if there is a chance or if it actually happens that um, D.A. Willis is disqualified, what happens to the people who have already pleaded guilty, or as I would say it, pled guilty? Um, what happens to their their verdicts? I'm in the pleaded camp, by the way. Plead, <laughs> pleaded, have pled. Um, I don't know, Jill. I think it's a really good question. I, I, I could actually see it coming down either way. Uh, I'd be interested in, you know, it's an unusual scenario. So I don't know if there's a lot of case law rules about this. Um, but I, I guess, you know, on the one hand, you would say, uh, oftentimes when you enter a guilty plea, you waive rights to challenge a lot of things about the prosecution because you are saying under oath, I did this thing. I really am guilty. And so all the rights you have to presumption of innocence and all the due process rights that go along with that are waived because you admit your guilt. On the other hand, um, to be effective, a waiver of any constitutional right must be knowing, voluntary, and um, 
intelligent. Um, and all those things are different things. So, you know, knowing I was aware of what I was doing, it was, uh, it was voluntary, I wasn't coerced. But to be intelligent means I kind of knew all the facts around it and still decided that this was the way I want to go. I, I suppose a defendant could say, if I had known about this conflict of interest, I never would have entered a guilty plea uh, because I believe she had a conflict of interest and, you know, I would want to pursue that. So I guess I'm not sure how it comes out. Do you have an opinion? Well, I agree with everything you've said, except that when it comes down to being knowing and intelligent and making your decision, you're pleading guilty to conduct that's charged. And let's say this gets transferred to another prosecution office. It's the same facts. Yeah. You still are admitting that you did these acts and that they violate the laws that are enumerated in the indictment. So I don't think that that would stop mm -hmm. the, uh, or give any right to withdraw the appeal. Uh, I'm sorry, to withdraw the um, guilty verdict. But let's move on because I was riveted by both days of testimony. And I know a lot of people were riveted partly because there was some salaciousness in, in the evidence. But let's sort of go through some of the key witnesses and how you think they came across in terms of credibility, in terms of relevance to the actual issue of disqualification. And let's start with her former friend uh, who worked in the DA's office and testified that the relationship started long before the affidavit filed said. And um, her credibility was put at issue because she admitted that she had been forced to either resign or being told that if she didn't resign, she'd be fired, which obviously raises a question about her motive to say something to get revenge. So who wants to comment about her former friend and her credibility and how damaging her testimony was? I watched that testimony, Jill. Um, her name is Robin Yerdy, and I thought she seemed credible in her testimony. Now, of course, as you pointed out, she does have some potential bias. You know, the thing that she said that it doesn't, you know, establish the conflict, but it does establish um, a, a fact in dispute was that she saw, she testified to, Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade being affectionate to each other with hugs and kisses as far back as 2019. Now, of course, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about this. Willis and Wade dispute that fact and say it's not that's not true. Uh, and there was the suggestion that they're no longer friends. They uh, she was uh, she resigned before she could be fired, and so maybe she has an axe to grind. There's also, you know, a theory of. Um, you know, maybe she misunderstood. Maybe she's got, maybe she made a mistake. I don't know. But I thought she seemed credible. You know, she said they were old friends. They knew each other since college. I thought her demeanor seemed credible. She didn't, you know, like anybody under the circumstances, she didn't particularly seem like she wanted to be there. She was testifying remotely. She was there virtually, but she put up her hand. She swore to tell the truth and she answered the questions and that was her testimony. Now, did you have a different take? Um, no, I, I actually found her credible and alarming um, because what that was saying is that the affidavit that Wade filed would have been false. And I think that's far more serious than the fact that he and Willis were having a relationship. Who cares about that? Um, that is their private business. But um, when I heard the part about 
she had to resign or be fired. I thought, oh, that that takes away some of the sting of what she said. And and then let's look at, you, you mentioned it's rebutted by what both Wade and Willis say. And so let's start with Wade, who, um, you know, testified about when his marriage was over. And he said, he answered certain questions on interrogatory saying, well, it wasn't during my marriage because my marriage was over and irretrievably broken in 2015 when my wife had an affair. Um, but he was still married. So it's sort of a little bit like Clinton saying, I did not have sex with that woman because he did not consider oral sex sex. Um, and maybe a little too slick. Um, Kim, what did you think about his testimony about the date and about what he answered in interrogatories in his divorce case? So it's hard for me to just answer that question in in itself without panning back into the bigger picture, right? Because as Barb very accurately set out, the point of this uh, evidentiary hearing was supposed to be to establish whether or not there was not just an improper relationship, because under Georgia law, um, prosecutors are not prohibited from having romantic relationships within an an office. Rules are different in other places, but in, in Georgia, that's not uh, a prohibition. So they had to stretch it to, uh, (laughs) claim some sort of financial benefit being made and that the financial benefit benefited uh, him and Fonnie Willis and that they, you know, colluded in some way to, to grift the system, essentially. So honestly, when this relationship started is, yes, maybe I guess technically if there was no relationship before they started, before uh, he was hired, then that's a slam dunk. That kills the entire case, right? Because you can't say that that was the purpose if there was no relationship there. But even if there were, that is not in itself any conflict of interest and that is not um, justification for disqualification. So the extent to which they were diving into that, and, and I will say it's also important to talk about his testimony in conjunction with Willis's because they were consistent with one, each, with one another. They both were consistent in when the relationship started. They said it began in 2022, almost consistent in when it ended. Uh, he said it was a couple months before she said, that's neither here nor there, but I think so is this. I mean, he, I think he was, he did as good a job as he could in the face of questioning, which quite frankly was so intrusive, which was so way off base, which is so, I mean, they're getting to the point of asking them, it was Clinton-esque yeah. since you brought it up, uh, about when they, the first, he was asked the first time they had sexual intercourse with each other. I mean, it was so offensive that he, he was able to sit there <laughs> And at at first I thought, I really wish he wasn't chuckling and smirking. But after a while, I'm like, listen, if that's all he's doing, I understand it. And as Fonnie Willis said, when she sat down, she called him a Southern gentleman. And so he held his tongue in a lot of ways that she was not a Southern gentleman. And so she did not feel the need (laughs) to hold her tongue. So I have to talk about their their testimony together and weigh that against the testimony of the former friend, um, and also any evidence or lack thereof that the defense counsel and special prosecutor brought up, because I don't think they had any receipts to show that there was any sort of financial uh, gain made by Wade or Willis. So I, I, that answers your question. I can't answer your question specifically. I needed to answer it in a little broader way. No, that that was a very good answer and is an accurate thing. The only question I would have after that is if 
the dates stated in the affidavit proved to be a lie because the friend was correct and it had started two years earlier, does that affect his overall credibility? And you mentioned his demeanor of he did sort of smile or laugh or, you know, smirk at times. And given the intrusiveness of the questions, that's a perfectly legitimate way to respond, I think. And I think a judge would understand that. But is there anything to the overall credibility if he lied in a prior uh, part of either the affidavit submitted in this case or in his interrogatories. Unless you're going to try to charge him with perjury, as I said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they started dating in 2019. That's not against any rule. That's not against any express rule that's set out. So the whole purpose is about when money started being exchanged and it didn't matter if they started dating before or if they started a relationship while in office and then she got a benefit from it. So I I just think it was, listen, this was not just an evidentiary hearing. They could have figured out a way to make a determination like this without broadcasting it on national TV, putting him on the stand for hours. Like I have been to evidentiary hearings that were less than an hour in really important points in, in cases that I was an attorney on. This was ridiculous. This was a public flogging. Did you see Fannie Willis's father talk about that? They said, did you, you know, the um, the um, lawyer for Mike Roman, did you watch the hearing? You know, I think making a suggestion that somehow he was, you know, being coached by what he saw or trying to oh, testify consistently. And he went on and on like, you bet I did. You couldn't miss it. It was on all day. Exactly. It was on every channel. I couldn't get away from it. I walked out of the room. It's on the radio. It's on or the TV. How, it's like- <laughs> or how people were suggesting that after... Uh, Fannie Willis's attorneys had initially argued that there was no need for her testimony. And then she came down and people were like, oh, was that staged? Was she already expecting to come? I'm like, no, could you imagine sitting all day and seeing, be, being talked about on national TV? I would be at the door. I would be at the door of the courthouse too, waiting to tell my side of the story. Especially if you're a trial lawyer and used to speaking for yourself. Right. Yes, it would be thing. very hard to oh, withstand yeah. that. But her father... I, my husband happened to be home while he was testifying. He said, this is the highlight of the whole thing. Oh, yeah, First of all, the, the dad was great. his background is unbelievable. How, what an impressive person he is. Mm-hmm. And any suggestion from the opponents that he said something because he was prepped in a certain way yeah. is so ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, yeah. No one who would not believe him. Yeah, he said, I've been to The Hague. Like, don't mess with me. (laughs) And the judge is, you know, that that kind of nonsense might work with the jury. It's not going to work with the judge. Of course they were prepped. Everybody gets prepped, right? You talk about what are you going to talk about? It would be a dereliction of duty for a lawyer to put a witness on the stand. Prep does not mean you're told what to say. You're told what the subjects are. Here's questions I'll ask you. Here's what you're going to be asked on cross-examination. How would you answer that? Not answer it this way. That's not prep. And, and they know knows that, right? Of course. So, of course. So I, 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 can't, I can't help but get the feeling that uh, much of this is designed to taint the jury pool and to campaign for Donald Trump, as opposed to really convincing this judge right. that, you know, Mr. Floyd is lying or was prepped or coached. And harm their reputations 
uh, publicly so that Donald Trump can use that on the campaign stump to go on and say all kinds of horrible things about them, that they're racist, that this, that, and the other thing. This was was so political, which is why I do not mind the fact that Fannie Willis shows some emotion and shows some anger. I think that anger was righteous and we needed to see it. Yeah. So talk more about Fannie because, I mean, she was obviously a very strong witness. And so- do you, Barb, did you have something to say about Fani's yeah, testimony? Yeah, uh, but I, I want to hear from Kim because I just wanted to point out that not only is Kim identifying herself as a man is not a plan, but she is also wearing Fani Willis fuchsia. And so I want to hear what Kim has to say about Fani. But I, I do also want to say, I think it is a big deal if an officer of the court has lied. If Nathan Wade and or Fani Willis lied about the date of their relationship starting, Uh, That's a big deal. I don't think it disqualifies them from this case because this case is all about whether there is a conflict of interest as to these defendants. But I think it could cause ethical problems for them in the future. I also also think Nathan Wade made some disclosures about using his off-business credit card for personal expenses. Yeah, that that was crazy. Ethical problems too. So, but it's it's important. But he said he didn't take it off his taxes. He did say, but that's still you don't do. I mean, yeah. So, but I think it's important to think precisely about what this is. They may have done some things that are wrong, but they do not um, in any way affect the fair trial rights of these defendants. And so it's important to separate those two things. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And just when I said, I want to clarify, when I said that there is no rule against uh, a personal relationship within the district attorney's office, I'm not saying that that's a good look. I'm not saying that I would have done that. I certainly wouldn't have. If it, whether... If I was seeing somebody before making that decision, I would not have considered that person to be lead prosecutor. And if I developed feelings after hiring that person, I would say, you know what, baby, we got to wait. Like, as soon as this is over, as soon as this trial is over, I will meet you and we will go on a date. I wouldn't have done that because I would not have wanted my um, uh, credibility question in any way whatsoever because of the importance of this, whether it was against the rules or not. And obviously lying under oath is nothing to be messed with. But perjury was never even mentioned in all of these things. That's not what this evidentiary hearing was about. And that's why, to me, it felt like a political, uh, you know, to borrow a phrase, witch hunt. So we've talked about the witnesses. How do you think the lawyers did? Well, I thought that um, the lawyer for Mike Roman um, was um, not super polished. She asked a lot of questions that were imprecise, that lacked time frame, that lacked reference. And so as a result, it took a lot longer than it probably should have. There was a lot of squabbling about, you know, objection and getting back to it. I think a more effective lawyer would have more fine-tuned the questions. Um, I also think it's just improper to delve into personal matters that assassinate a person's character when they are not directly relevant to the issue at hand. I think it's fair game to talk about money and money changing hands and whether Fannie Willis was receiving kickbacks. But they went so far afield and all that, as Kim said, you know, talking about their personal history, their sexual history, other kinds of things, that um, I, I think it is just... Um, It is an attack on the criminal justice system itself because when you assassinate the character of prosecutors, I think there is a deterrent effect on people becoming prosecutors. Uh, Certainly, uh, I have experienced the defense strategy of putting the prosecution on trial. But what that usually means is 
attacking, you know, the investigation that there was a rush to judgment or they formed an opinion and then they worked to confirm their own biases or whatever it is. But that's always been about the conduct, not about the personality of the prosecutor, not about their personal characteristics and their personal lives. And if you watch what is happening to Fannie Willis, you can imagine a lot of people saying, oh man, I don't ever want to put myself through all of that. And so I think that the lawyering was not only sort of sloppy and, um, uh, you know, not as sharp as it could be. I also thought it was just ethically improper to go down this road. And I, I also fault the judge for allowing them to dig into all of this when it's uh, well beyond the bounds of that which was relevant. Yeah, Barbara, that was going to be my question. It, the judge, I mean, it seemed at the end of uh Thursday's hearing, he finally sort of started speaking up and cutting off yeah. uh, irrelevant lines of questioning. But it took him all day to get yeah. to that point. There were times that I was asking, why is he not intervening more? Which, you know, yep. at the end of the day still keeps me, you know, concerned about how this will all come out. I don't know this judge and I don't know uh, exactly how Judge McAfee will rule uh, based on that. But as to the lawyers, I think that the defense lawyers did a great job uh, energizing Democratic voters in Georgia and beyond. <laughs> yeah. and, and I just have to point out that um, Roman's lawyer, Merchant, who you were referring to earlier, is married to another member of the defense team. So it's really ironic that she is raising this issue of conflict of interest when she's married to another lawyer in the case. Um, and, you know, I forgot to ask about the governor, former governor of um, Georgia testified. And Kim, you made a comment um, on today on MSNBC. And I don't know if you heard Charles Coleman, who raised this issue. I did. And said, the collegiality between all those white boys in the courtroom definitely excluded a black woman of color. And I, that was a very powerful point to me, um, just being a woman and being excluded from the old boys network. But what did you think? I, I actually sent uh, Charles a message thanking him for that message because yeah. um, it, it was really clear that there was a click among some in that courtroom that did not include everyone. And to me, I thought, this is again, I thought they might have learned their lesson on Thursday um, about really pissing off uh, women, particularly women of color, but clearly they, they didn't because that was quite a moment. And as for the governor's testimony, he added absolutely nothing. Like he could have, he could have saved the trip. I mean, what probative evidence did he give? None. I thought there was a little bit of probative evidence and it was this, he declined to take the, the case. And I think that tended to show that Fonnie Willis wasn't like giving Nathan Wade any gift here by hiring him. She tried to find people to do this job and it was hard to find people to do this job. And she found him and um, the uh, former governor also said that they were both, you know, highly capable lawyers and that uh, Nathan Wade was a very good organizer. So I, I thought it actually helped uh, the, the Willis position uh, to hear those things from this person who is part of this legal establishment to hear those things. I completely agree with Barb that it actually helped Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade and hurt the uh, the, the complainants in this matter, uh, that it, it wasn't good. So last question, although we could discuss this for our full hour. Um, there are so many other important things to get on with. Um, 
What do you think is going to be the final ruling about whether the uh, Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade are disqualified or the office is disqualified? How will Judge McAfee rule? I think he will find that there's no conflict of interest here as as to the defendants. There's been nothing shown uh, to, to make anything out of this, you know, alleged kickback scheme. They even said like she was guilty of a RICO or something. I mean, it's ridiculous. I think he will find there's no conflict of interest. He will keep her on the case. And if anything, I think there is a real risk that this all backfires on the defense. Uh, I mean, when I first heard about these allegations, I thought, shame on Fonnie Willis. Like, how dare you have, in the biggest case of your life, um, a secret affair with your coworker. And now I'm left saying, you know, Nathan Wade said, it wasn't secret, it was just private. Uh, and in hearing her testify, I'm in, like totally in her camp now. Uh, it, it, she absolutely won me over and I'm feeling protective of her. And, um, you know, to the extent the goal is to taint the jury pool, they may, you know, it may work in the world of Trump supporters, but I think to neutral observers, uh, this this gimmick backfired. Did her father's testimony, you, you mentioned the secret versus private did her father's testimony that he did not know about their relationship, even though he knew about her prior boyfriend and had met her prior, prior boyfriend, did that at all impact whether you believed the difference between secret and private? Yeah, helpful, not dispositive, I think. Helpful to uh, the Willis-Wade view of the world. I thought it was ridiculous. Ask my dad when I dated somebody. He doesn't know. I mean, I just think it was a part of just the attempt to embarrass the attempt. I mean, he was he was a lot calmer. I will say he was a lot calmer than my dad would have been if asked <laughs> to comment on my finances and my love life. Like, honestly, he has the the patience of Job. You know, getting a good night's sleep is so important. And you can't get a good night's sleep if you don't have a comfortable mattress. But the good news is you can find your perfect mattress and get the best sleep of your life when you take Helix's two-minute sleep quiz and match with a customized mattress for your body type and your preferences. You know, all of us uh, sisters have different preferences when it comes to everything, even different opinions. I like a firm mattress. But you know, I know that when Joyce took the Helix quiz, she matched with the Helix Midnight mattress and she loves it so much that she bought one for everyone in her family. And we love their mattresses too. Your sleep will be better than ever with Helix and you can upgrade to a mattress tailored just for the way you sleep. Like us, you'll never go back. The Helix lineup offers 20 unique mattresses, including the award-winning Lux Collection, the newly released Helix Elite Collection, mattresses designed for big and tall sleepers, and even a mattress made just for kids. They cradle your body for essential support in any sleeping position with enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating. And if your spine needs some extra TLC, they've got you. Every Helix mattress has a hybrid design combining individually wrapped steel coils in the base with premium foam layers on top. It's the perfect combination of comfort and support. I'm getting sleepy just talking about it, Jill. (laughs) Well, don't sleep during the show. (laughs) Helix knows there's no better way to test out a new mattress than by sleeping on it in your own home. That's why they come with a 10 to 15 year warranty and offer a 100 night trial so that you can try out your new Helix mattress. 
Plus, the setup is fast and easy, and Helix mattresses are delivered in a box straight to your door for free. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress by GQ and Wired Magazine. Leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine use Helix as a go-to solution for improved sleep. And now Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com sisters and use code HELIXPARTNER20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Find the link in our show notes. So just as we began recording this podcast, the news came down that Donald Trump and other members of his family have been fined more than $350 million for committing fraud as the head of the Trump Organization, defrauding insurance companies and banks. And in addition, Donald Trump cannot do business in the state of New York or serve on a corporate board for three years. So it's not the corporate death penalty, but it's still a corporate sentence. Nonetheless, I want to get a reaction from my sisters first, just on the amount of this verdict, as well as the injunctive relief uh, given here. I'm going to start with you, Barb. Um. I think this was appropriate. You know, it's uh, it's interesting. If you look at all of the fraud here um, and the judge's language, it's just over the top. And this was an effort to disgorge the profits, the ill-gotten gain from all of this. And so, um, you know, it's difficult to measure the loss. There's no, you know, real loss. But what were the... Um, you know, the profits that Donald Trump and the Trump organization made as a result of their fraud. And that's what this number is, an approximation into all of that. And, you know, just to refresh our memories of some of the more egregious examples of what he did, remember he said that um, his apartment in Trump Tower was, um, you know, three times the size. It's it's 10,000 square feet. He said it was 30,000 square feet. You know, prime real estate on Fifth Avenue, that's huge. Um, the Mar-a-Lago Resort, he said, uh, according to the, the appraisers of Palm Beach County, they appraised the property's fair market value as between 18 and $27 million. On his documents, he said it was between 426 and $612 million. It's a huge, huge uh, amount of fraud. He commits fraud with reckless abandon. And I find it refreshing to see a judge uh, methodically hold him accountable and um, demonstrate to the world that the fraud that's been going on for decades. Well, I, I agree, of course, with Barbara, but there is also a pattern and practice of fraud. Um, Trump University, which was never a university, it it was fraud just to call it that. Um, the trial in which Weisselberg went to jail, which is a criminal case as opposed to the Trump University, which was a civil case, um, was fraud. And so I, you have to take all that past into consideration when you are awarding it. I think that some of the injunctive relief uh, is as significant as the amount of the damages. And that's because 
he basically is not going to be able to borrow from a bank that is licensed in New York. It doesn't have to be headquartered there. It just has to be doing business in New York. He cannot borrow from that bank at any location. So that's a significant problem for someone in the real estate business. And it wasn't just him. It was both his sons and who are barred for a lesser amount of time and only had $4 million damages each. It was also Weisselberg and McConaughey um, who are penalized here and they cannot serve um, in a financial role in any corporation. So this is really significant, but also part of the reason he didn't pull the license completely was because he's giving enhanced authority to Barbara Jones. And Barbara Jones is someone I know very well. She was chair of a uh, committee looking at sexual assault in the military that I served on. She is a former federal judge, very well regarded and respected, has been involved actually in Trump world for a long time because she was the uh, judge who made decisions about attorney-client privilege uh, going back to the Michael Cohn case. Um, and part of her enhanced authority is to recommend pulling the license. But in addition, um, the judge ordered the appointment of an independent director of compliance. And remember, in order to appeal this, he has to put up all of this money, all of it, in order to go forward. And he can't borrow from a bank. So, or at least not from a bank in New York. I don't know where he's going to go. Um, so I think it's a really significant and I'm just wondering, everybody who's done polling says, oh, if he gets convicted in a criminal case, that might affect my vote. I wonder whether this might affect votes of yeah. even loyal Trump cultists. I mean, he's a front. I mean, his part of all of his, uh, you know, his whole story is how he's this great businessman and how he, he runs things. He's, he's a, a fraud. He is an adjudicated fraud at this point, and he has to pay a hefty fine for that. So I think you're exactly right, Jill. And to your point about having to post this bond, uh, one question that um, I've already gotten, and I'm sure we'll get it a lot more, is, well, with respect to potential other judgments, say the E. Jean Carroll case, how might this affect that? We do know that Donald Trump is a guy who lies about his money. He probably lies about his liquidity as well. Could this affect E. Jean Carroll or other, other judgments that he may have to pay if he has to put up maybe all the cash he has on hand uh, for this? What do you think, Joe? I did hear a discussion of how much cash he might have on hand from the sale of the Trump former post office hotel hmm. um, and of a golf course in the Bronx. And whether it would be enough to cover this judgment and the E. Jean Carroll judgments, which are significant. Um, I mean, we're at 88 million uh, with the two judgments there. I don't know whether he has the money. As to who will get that money, it's going to depend on who gets appealed first and decided first. I think that, you know, the, the first that has a collectible judgment from the money that's put up uh, is going to get the money. And so mm. both of them are going to be rushing through the appeals process to get this done. And then, you know, he can't even appeal this unless he has over $350 million to put up for this. So he's going to have to be scrambling 
to to do this. And I I I I don't know. I think it's going to be really interesting to follow. Forbes uh, estimates his net worth at $4 billion. Now, of course, as you say, he's been a fraud his whole life, so who knows whether that's accurate. But he might have to sell stuff, right? You can't just say, "Eh, it's all tied up in real estate. Well, you're going to have to sell your real estate to make good on your debts. Yeah, yeah. And and one last question for the both of you. I I wrote a while back uh, after his lawyers argued in this case, you know, it's a victimless crime. The banks were, you know, Donald Trump keeps saying the banks were happy. The banks were happy to give me this money. It was a victimless crime. Um, It is not a victimless crime in a lot of ways. One, if he uh, now that he has been deemed a fraud, it is certain that banks are going to change their policies and make it a lot harder for legitimate uh, business owners to be able to get the kind of capital that they need. Also, the fact that he was able to uh, use phony numbers to get the loans and insurance comp- uh, coverage he had, it, it is not a, a limitless world. That means that it was probably denied to other businesses that really needed it. Also, if he's um, lying about his, his these numbers, as the uh, subsequent monitors report said, uh, potentially also his taxes, that is money that he is not paying in taxes that could go to your schools, that could go to your parks, to your roads. And guess who pays for it? You do. Or you have terrible schools and terrible parks and terrible roads. So talk a little bit um, from a legal standpoint about this notion of fraud, business fraud, financial, corporate financial fraud being victimless part. Yeah, so this is a defense that is often brought out by defendants in fraud cases, which is the bank didn't suffer any loss. So uh, no problem, right? There's, In fact, they made money, so it's okay. The bank was entitled to the information they requested so that they could assess the risk in making that loan. It is like a drunk driver saying, hey, I made it home okay, so no harm done, right? Nobody died. Um, And in fact, the bar was happy I bought so much alcohol. So what's the big deal? You created a risk that you are not supposed to create. And so that is a crime. I also would point to the um, damage this has on fair competition in the marketplace. So if other uh, organizations are complying with the rules and are getting loans on different terms because of their risk, then he is getting an unfair business advantage by getting loans that other people are not getting. So there's absolute harm here and you don't get to cheat and lie just because you're rich. And both of you have made all the points that can be made, except to say he may have paid a lower rate of interest because of his fraud. And so the banks, well, they made money, but they would have made more money if they had known the risk that they were really taking because he had overvalued uh, his properties. So there is some harm to them, but I think Barb is right. It's harm to all of us and to his competing businesses as well. You know, taking care of our planet and our environment is so important. And it's about making good choices, even choices of things you may not otherwise think about, like the things we use every day, including toilet paper. But there is a more eco-friendly way to do just about anything. And it's all about bamboo. Nope, not the way you think. It's about real paper. 
you know, these days we are clear cutting our forest to make toilet paper and it just gets flushed down the toilet. But with real paper, they have found a better way. It's so true. Environmentally, that's what everyone needs to do. Real makes a sustainable toilet paper that contains no trees and instead uses 100% bamboo. And if you're like me, even in Chicago, we can grow bamboo and it just proliferates so much. It just takes care of itself. It isn't something that isn't sustainable. Real paper is certified by the Forest Stewardship Council, meaning that they are responsibly harvesting the bamboo grass that's used for their paper. It's so soft, sustainable, and comfortable. We're never going to go back to the old stuff. While the other conventional tree-based papers are wrapped in plastic in the grocery aisle, Real Paper's packaging is plastic-free, compostable, and offers free shipping on all orders. Real also partners with One Tree Planted. So every box of Real that you buy funds reforestation efforts across the country. Unlike other TP that cuts down trees, Real is helping to actively plant them. Real Paper is available in easy, hassle-free subscriptions or for one-time purchases on their website. All orders are conveniently delivered to your door with free shipping in 100% recyclable, plastic-free packaging. If you head to realpaper.com SIL and sign up for a subscription using our code SIL at checkout, you'll automatically get 30% off your first order and free shipping. That's R-E-E-L-P-A-P-E-R dot com slash S-I-L or enter promo code S-I-L to get 30% off your first order plus free shipping. So let's stop flushing our forests and try Real's tree-free paper. Real is paper for the planet. You can find the link in our show notes. All right, folks, I want to do a lightning round on the other Trump cases that are percolating out there um, and a new one. So first, um, Judge Juan Mershon held a hearing in New York on Thursday in the hush money case. The judge denied Trump's motion to dismiss the case and confirmed that the trial will start March 25th. And he said it's likely to last six weeks. Of course, this is the case involving Alvin Bragg and the hush money. So it looks like this is going to be the first of the Trump criminal cases to go to trial. Kim, I kind of feel like this one has been a little bit of a sleeper among the cases, maybe a little bit off the radar, and I think could be more significant than some people think. Um, Alvin Bragg has recently kind of reframed this case as not being just about false business entries, but about an effort to conceal wrongdoing to avoid political problems on the eve of the 2016 election. What's your assessment of this case? This is going to be the first one. Yeah, it is the first one. And I think because of that, and, you know, we, have, we haven't spoken about this case nearly as much as the others, uh, is one reason that uh, District Attorney Bragg is shaping this, framing this as another election interference case, right? Donald Trump interfered with allowing voters to have all the information in 2016 that they could have used from which to decide who to vote for for president by paying... Stormy Daniels to keep quiet, right? So it's not just uh, about 
breaking these particular laws about business records. It's about something bigger than that. And I think that that's important to do. I I don't think that he's wrong in that. I think that's precisely why this is a problem and and violates, among other things, um, potentially uh, state campaign finance rules because you're supposed to disclose that. That's a valuable thing that needed to be disclosed. Um, And and if you recall, this is about a 2016 payment to Stormy Daniels in order to keep her quiet about uh, their previous relationships. But it's an important case. He's facing 34 felony counts here. This is nothing to sneeze at. And it comes with a prison sentence of uh, as much as four years. Um, You know, so he's running to be in the way. And I think that's per count. Although I'm sure any judge would, you know, uh, make them concurrent. Probably, yes, probably make them uh, concurrent, right? I can, I'm trying yep. to get my concurrent. I, I confuse concurrent and consecutive, and I also confuse uh, supine and prone. So <laughs> it's the one where they all run at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is, a, you have probably both read the autobiography of Malcolm X, and he actually tells a funny story there where he was uh, sentenced as a young man. He was in Detroit and committed some, you know, minor crime. Right. And the judge sentenced him to, you know, whatever it was. Um, but it was multiple counts to yes. run concurrently. And he said he didn't know what the word concurrently <laughs> meant. And so he's doing the math in his head and he thinks, oh no, I'm going to be yeah. in prison for years and years. And then his, his lawyer had to explain what it meant. Like, no, oh, no, no, no. In the movie, they fainted. It's like, no, 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 it's okay. Yeah, yeah, you're good. It's okay. <laughs> so I, I, I understand that, I do. So yes, this is an important taste bar because you know, remember he can't pardon himself. He can't mm-hmm. you know, yep. use other shields to try to... Yep. Uh, keep from facing accountability here. Um, he can't claim uh, privilege because this happened before he was president. So this is a big deal. Yeah. Um, Jill, I want to ask you a question. You know, the feds had a chance to charge this case and they didn't. And I've often wondered if the reason the feds took a pass on this was because of the essential role of Michael Cohen. Uh, you know, he is certainly going to be a key witness in this case. And um, should we be worried <laughs> about the role of Michael Cohen? It's always been rumored that that was why the feds took a pass on this. And yet Michael Cohen has been very cooperative and the uh, attorney general's case depended on him as well. I mean, it, it, it's a civil case, but he was the one who pointed out the overinflation, the undervaluing when it was convenient for him on either of those things. Um, I've come to know Michael Cohn a little bit by, you know, either being on air with him or having him on my podcast or being on his. And I, I like him. I, I, he's not a friend. I, I don't go to him with my personal information, but he, he's someone that I have come to like a lot. And I think that a jury will accept his testimony as they have in the past. And so I, I'm not that worried about uh, Michael Cohn being a key witness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also take comfort in the fact that this is a documents case. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he's there to provide some narration and some connecting of the dots. But I, I imagine if you're a prosecutor, you're going to make sure that everything he says is corroborated by documents. And so that I think can can really help minimize any baggage he might have as a convicted perjurer. Um certainly frowned upon when you're selecting your witnesses. But, you know, you don't get to pick your witnesses in a criminal case. 
oftentimes the most important witnesses are co-conspirators. They're people who are criminals. They frequently have lied. Um, I, I can't think of a case where I didn't have someone that I didn't admire or respect who I didn't think was a, a career criminal or a person of no moral value. It's just what you do when you're proving a crime. It's not, except in a bank robbery where there might be an innocent patron in the bank or an innocent guard to testify, mostly it's the co-conspirators, co-defendants yeah. even. Did you ever use this line, Jill, when you were talking about a cooperator who had baggage like this? The, pro- the government didn't choose the witness, yes. the defendant did. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Drama. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's move on. This is the lightning round. I also want to discuss the federal election interference case. We saw Jack Smith file his response, and then we even got a reply from Donald Trump Thursday night um, to the Supreme Court regarding Trump's motion to stay the case while he appeals the appellate court's decision rejecting his immunity defense. And so Smith has asked the court to deny the motion to stay and send this case back to trial. Now let's get on with it. And then to even deny Trump's forthcoming request to review the case on the merits. Um, And then in the alternative, Smith says, well, if the court's going to entertain this, uh, let's treat this as a, this motion as a petition for certiorari right now and decided on an expedited basis. So that's, those are some pretty good alternatives. And so Kim, what do you think of that argument? Do you think there's any chance that the court um, denies the stay outright and uh, lets it go to, to the court or that it does this expedited thing that Jack Smith is asking for? I think that the chance, I think it's going to be one of the two. I would, I would say two thirds likelihood that they deny uh, the stay altogether, uh, and the trial proceeds, maybe one third chance that they take it up on cert. I think there's zero chance that they do what Donald Trump wants is keep the stay in place and let him seek on banc review, knowing what the outcome of what that is and knowing that that's a pretty, you know, patent, uh, attempt to run out the clock and delay and the, the court's not going to let him do that. Um, but listen, I, I think that Jack Smith is, you know, understandably wants this to get going and that he has, he read this opinion from the three judge panel at the DC circuit, which was very thorough and said, look, is saying, basically saying now, look, Supreme Court, this is as well-reasoned as it can be. You have it right here. You can save yourself some time. We know your docket is full with other stuff, including other Donald Trump stuff. Just let us get going. And after this is all done, if the the defendant can appeal as much as he'd like and you can take it up then. Right, right, right. Um, Jill, I want to ask you a different question. If I, I don't know if you read the reply brief that Trump filed, which is um, accusing Jack Smith of engaging in political motives. Because remember at the outset, um, back before this case was decided by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, Jack Smith had said, uh, we should leapfrog the Court of Appeals. We should go straight to the Supreme Court. Uh, as Kim would say, do not pass go, do not collect $200. Straight to the Supreme Court for a quick review because this is a case of national import. We know it's ending up in the Supreme Court anyway. So let's skip this intermediate step and go straight to the Supreme Court. And now he says, well, the Supreme uh, Court of Appeals has decided no need for the Supreme Court to look at this at all. Let's just get back to it. And um, they're saying this just proves that Jack Smith is all about politics and he's just trying to choose the timing of the trial to uh, interfere with the election. What do you think about that argument? I think that argument is a big bust. I think that 
The circumstances have changed from the time that Jack Smith made the original skip the Court of Appeals and go straight to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, no, we're going to do this in the normal course. The Court of Appeals acted expeditiously and did a very well-reasoned, very well-documented opinion that was procurium, which means there was no concurring opinions. There was only one opinion, and it spoke for all the judges of the Court of Appeals. And it's a opinion that's so well done that the Supreme Court can't really add much to it. I don't know that it needs to take it up at all at this point. I think it could say, we're denying the stay, and then simultaneously, concurrently, say, and we are going to grant cert on the merits and dismiss it because we think that there's nothing we can add. I think they can read the opinion and know that that's what they would agree with. So I don't think there's a, uh, any reason to assume this is politically motivated. This is in the interest of um, a rapid trial, in the interest of the defendant, in the interest of the state, in the interest of all of us voters who want to know the outcome of the case before they have to go to the polls. And the right of a speedy trial is not just the defendant's right. It is the defendant's right, but it is also all of our right. And I, I think the Supreme Court will get that and they will either really expedite this so that it doesn't delay the trial any more than it needs to. And they could certainly deny the stay during the pendency of their cert petition so that the trial can get back on track and then they can deny the case on the merits so that it will never get off track again and can get set to be tried before the election. Yeah, you raised such a good point about the right of a speedy trial. It's uh, so often framed as a defendant's right. But uh, in our criminal procedure class just today, just this afternoon, before we started recording, we were discussing with our class the Federal Speedy Trial Act and how the right to a speedy trial belongs to the public and not just to the defendant. So thanks for backing me up there, Jill. See, students, I'm not the only one who thinks <laughs> Absolutely. It's right there in the statute. It's right there in the statute. All right, I want to move on to one more case that I thought was fascinating that was um, reported on Thursday, and that is these new charges by David Weiss. Now, he's the special counsel, of course, who um, has charged Hunter Biden with tax offenses and gun offenses in two separate indictments. Um, on Thursday, he filed charges against uh, a different person, a man named Alexander Smirnov, uh, for providing false information about Hunter Biden. According to the indictment, Alexander Smirnov was an informant for the FBI, and he told the FBI that Hunter Biden had demanded bribes for himself and his father from a Ukrainian business, the one, you know, Burisma, on whose board um, Hunter Biden had served. So amazing. Um, Kim, wasn't this the information that was the basis for the effort to impeach Joe Biden? All that reporting about money for the big guy and Joe Biden got the prosecutor in Ukraine fired because he was trying to interfere with this investigation. I mean, 
it was all made up. Does yeah. this, uh, do you think this will end all efforts to impeach Joe <laughs> Biden now for allegedly leading a crime family? So I have to start just by saying in any other week, this would have been like the first <laughs> yes, thing we talked about, yeah. right? And yet this week has been so crazy that that we, we can't dedicate the whole show to it. Yes, this claim was the foundation upon which the entire case that, uh, Congressional Republicans and prosecutors were trying to make against Hunter Biden rested, that there was this deal, this attempt to uh, leverage uh, by Hunter Biden to leverage his proximity to the big guy, meaning then Vice President Joe Biden, in order to uh, get money um, and, and get this lucrative deal. Yes, it was all made uh, it didn't happen. It couldn't have happened. The timeline doesn't add up. And and it, it was so uh, egregious that uh, this so-called informant, uh, Alexander Smirnov, is now facing charges himself. Now, keep in mind, Hunter Biden is still facing charges, too, on other matters. But this was everything uh, that this was based on. So should this put an end to this congressional inquiry, including this impeachment investigation into Joe Biden? Yes. Will it? No. Because <laughs> it's not like congressional Republicans have needed actual facts um, to do any of this. We just watch them yeah. impeach the the uh, the head of uh Homeland Security, the Secretary of Homeland Security, be over the situation at the border when they themselves refused to fund uh, the border and and failed to pass a, a, a funding bill that has resulted now in detainees being released because ICE doesn't have the funding to keep them uh, done. So it's not like the decision at it, the decisions happening in the Republican-led Congress are making any sense. Yeah. Um- well, uh, I, I thought it was very interesting. And Jill, I'm wondering what effect you think these charges might have on any FARA charges against Hunter Biden. That's the Foreign Agent Registration Act. Remember that, you know, one of the reasons I think the whole plea deal fell apart when it did, remember Hunter Biden was going down this path of um, agreeing to plead guilty and he wanted assurances that he would not be charged for anything in the future and the David Weiss would not give it, that to him. And there was speculation it's because they were investigating him under this Foreign Agents Registration Act. Do you think this indictment suggests that there's no there there and we're done with David Weiss investigating Hunter Biden? So I've sort of always believed there was no there there <laughs> to begin with um, and that the charges that were brought for guns and taxes, but particularly the gun charges, are charges that would not have been brought but for his last name. No one else in the world would have been charged with those violations. Um, and because I don't know who all the witnesses might be on a fire charge, it's hard to answer. But to the extent that Smirnoff was one of those witnesses, that case is over. You can't put him on, not just because he's a perjurer, but because he is an unrepentant perjurer who's just been charged in a related matter, something that really relates to Hunter. I mean, they don't name Hunter and Joe Biden, except by saying 
in such clear terms who the um, political one is and who the business right, one is. Right, what do they say? Is. Businessman one and politi- public official one. one. Yeah. <laughs> who was either yeah, the president or is. vice president. I mean, they go yeah. that far. <laughs> so, I mean, it's obvious that we're talking about Biden and his son. Uh, there's no question. Um, it's a related matter. You obviously cannot put him on the stand. And even if he pleads guilty and admits to the falsity, I think it's it's pretty much bad. It was a bad case to begin with. It's even worse now. And, you know, there is a reason why they haven't filed that when they filed the other charges. Um, and now they may be really sorry they didn't take that plea deal and they're going to have to go to trial and he could win. Public official whose name rhymes with low riding. <laughs> <laughs> You know, when I was at the Justice Department, people used to make fun of me for doing that sort of thing in an indictment. And they're like, everybody knows who you're talking about. Why are you even trying to do this? And the answer is, it is part of the Justice Department policy to not name people in indictments who are not charged with crimes. But it does lead to these sort of laughable results. And and I have to say, in this particular indictment, it's really hard to read it because it's associate one, associate two. Oh, wait, are those Ukrainians? Are they Russians? Are they who are they? And um, other than businessman one and public official one, who you clearly will remember throughout who they are. I I found it a little harder to read and make sense of than most speaking indictments. Kim, I'd like to have a conversation about foundational garments. Well, you know, it's an important conversation to have, Barb, and it's important to fall in love with all of your clothes. And this February, with today's sponsor, Honey Love, you can do just that. Honey Love has revolutionized the bra game by ditching bulky fabrics that trap heat and eliminating underwire without sacrificing shape. They're made with fabric that's super soft and comfortable, and you'll see and feel the difference immediately. And for a limited time, you can get Honey Love on sale, 20% off, in fact, on your entire order with an exclusive link from hashtag sistersinlaw. That link is honeylove.com slash sisters. Support our show and check them out at honeylove.com slash sisters. Honey Love's bestseller crossover will be your new go-to. It's supportive without being uncomfortable. And plus, the smoothing fabric is super, super flattering and will help you have amazing style on any occasion. So, Barb, I'm totally shocked you want to have this conversation. Well, but I'm you glad have you have this conversation. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, and you don't want to participate, but uh, it's it's really important. And if you want a lounging vibe, I recommend their V Edition. It provides great support without underwire, which makes it perfect for any day, whether you're at work or relaxing at home. That's not all. Honey Love has so much more to offer. They also have incredibly comfortable shapewear, tanks, and leggings for everyday support. You'll look great pairing your V-bra with their breathable and versatile leggings or by matching your shapewear to your crossover. Treat yourself to the best bras on the market. I don't even know what some of those words mean. But I do know that you can save 20% off at honeylove.com slash sisters. Use our exclusive link to get 20% off, honeylove.com slash sisters. After your purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. 
Treat yourself to honey love because you deserve it. Look for the link in the show notes. Well, now we come to the part of the show that is our absolute favorite, the part where we answer listener questions. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tag us at at sistersinlaw.podcast on threads or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our threads feeds throughout the week where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. Our first question comes to us from Dennis in Redwood City, California. Jill, I'm going to steer this one your way. Could you please compare Pence and Biden's circumstances and reports concerning their improperly handled documents? They're sort of similar, and Pence got a real break by having a one-page statement of no indictment, and Biden had hundreds of pages that pulled out totally irrelevant things. Um, The differences between Pence, Biden, and Trump were pointed out in the report. And those are legitimate and because we want equal justice, equal treatment of defendants for similar conduct. So it's, it's fair to point out that Biden isn't being indicted for holding on to documents because he didn't try to hide them once he found them. He called the government and said, come and take them. And he didn't try to hide them or destroy them or anything like that. That's a big difference from how Trump handled them. But both Pence and Biden found the documents. They both reported them. And what's the difference? Biden is a Democrat who is being uh, prosecuted by a very far right Republican um, who may have a political um, goal in mind. And that's what led to this extraneous information uh, about Trump's mental acuity and memory. I'll chime in just a, a smidge. I don't know that it's clear his motive is political, but I do agree that he violated the principles of federal prosecution by including those details. I don't know if that we give him the benefit of that on the detail, but I do agree with you that it's a well, violation. Well, I, I, of course, I don't know his motive, but mm-hmm. his violation is clear mm-hmm. to me uh, that it's just improper for a prosecutor to in any way harm a non-indicted person. And in a confidential memo, a press memo to your boss, you might go into some things about what influenced you, but in a public report, that is completely inappropriate. And, you know, I don't know how you feel, Barb, but I blame Merrick Garland for letting this go forward without some redaction or explanation. Yeah, I don't know. He, Garland was in a rock, between a rock and a hard place too politically. Yeah. Well, why don't we move on? We discussed that a little bit last week. Um, our next question comes to us from Terry. Has anyone, including legal counsel, ever been held in contempt at the Supreme Court? Kim, what do you think? You're our Supreme Court guru. Yes, this is a wonderful, nerdy question that I'm so glad uh, we got. Uh, So the answer is it has happened at the Supreme Court, but only once. So let me step back a bit. 
Being held in contempt is usually something that happens in trial courts, right? Because you have witnesses that are testifying, you have lawyers that are engaging, uh, questioning witnesses in lines of questioning that are, can go over the line, can violate the rules of that court. And if they do it repeatedly or if witnesses or, or parties uh, go out of line repeatedly, that's when a judge has the power to hold them in contempt. Or if they fail to show up, for example, to testify, they can be held in contempt. At appellate courts like the Supreme Court, that doesn't happen as much because it's usually just attorneys arguing issues of law or constitutional issues before a panel. So you don't have as many opportunities. But back in 1906, there was a case called United States versus Ship, which involved, it was it's a terrible story. It involved uh, a man, a black man in Chattanooga uh, named Ed Johnson, who had been convicted of sexual assault and sentenced to death. But the U.S. U.S. Supreme Court stayed that execution. So a group of people, including a sheriff named Joseph Ship, is where the case gets his name, went to the uh, jail where Ed Johnson was being held, got him out and lynched him. And they were held in contempt as well as convicted for that lynching at the U.S. Supreme Court. It is to this day the only trial that has been held before the U.S. Supreme Court. So it is possible for someone to be held in contempt, but it hasn't happened since that really, really awful case. Wow, I did not know about that. That's very interesting. Um, Our final question comes from Janet in New York City, New York. When someone takes possession of classified material, who keeps track of it going out and coming in? Who is responsible for following up to see that documents are returned? Janet, I will answer your question. I know the answer to that. Um, So there are two primary responsible sources for this. One is the owner of the material. So there's always uh, somebody who owns the material. So it might be the FBI in one instance. It might be the CIA. It might be NSA. It might be the Department of Defense. And so typically if there's, for example, a hearing under the Classified Information Procedures Act, typically there would be a courier who comes to the hearing with the documents and they carry them in, they bring them for the judge. Maybe the uh, hearing is actually conducted in a skiff if they are at um, top secret level or above uh, and the judge goes to the skiff and there, that is a um, sensitive compartmented information facility. It's a special room that is designed to prevent bugs and electronic um, eavesdropping and other things. Uh, And so usually it's the owner of the material who will keep it there. In addition, there is something called a court security officer. These are officers who work for the court itself. They come out from Washington for one of these hearings to supervise because a lot of times the judges don't know all the rules about handling classified information. So they are there to assist the judge. I can remember being in SEPA hearings where the court security officer would do things like disconnect the phone from the wall and pull the blinds and search the room, sweep the room for bugs and do all kinds of things like that. Um, But they're there to make sure the judge doesn't do anything, uh, you know, unintentionally, unwittingly, that would compromise the classified information in some way. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Weinbanks, Kimberly Atkins Store, and me, Barb McQuaid. Remember, you can send in your questions for next week by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com. You can also tag us at at sistersinlaw.podcast on threads or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. 
Remember, if you want to snag a hashtag Sisters in Law mug, go to politicon.com slash merch. And please show some love to this week's sponsors, Blue Land, Helix, Real Paper, and Honey Love. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them because they really do make this podcast possible. Please follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag Sisters in Law. Do you know what the only thing that'd be better than a nice, delicious cup of clam chowder in Boston? It would be having one with my sisters-in-law in Boston. Don't you think we should get together there? Well, that sounds pretty good, Kim, but I can think of one thing better, and that would be to get together in Detroit for a Coney dog. Ooh. I think that would be the primo gathering. You guys keep talking about Coney dogs, and while I cannot wait to taste one, I want you to taste a Chicago hot dog, a Vienna hot dog first. And I think doing a show here would be absolutely the ultimate best thing we could do. Let's see what we could do about all that stuff, because all of those things sound amazing.